This is a familiar story for most of us. Sweet baby Moses floating in a basket among the reeds along the banks of the Nile River. In the illustration that accompanies this tale in children's story Bibles, you'll often find a smiling or even sleeping baby swaddled in a cradle-like basket floating on still water. After all, this is a story with a happy ending, right? Baby is in danger, mom hides baby, sister watches over baby, and then the beautiful princess swoops in to save the day. Not only is the baby's life spared, he even gets to return to his family until he is old enough to join his adoptive mother in the palace. It is the birth of our hero, for as we know, this baby will grow up to stand barefoot on hollowed ground before a burning bush. He will come to lead his people out from under the yoke of an oppressive tyrant into freedom and a new world, the promised land. He will stand in the very presence of God and be forever changed by it. But before Moses could come to perform miracles, before he could raise his staff and make visible the awesome power of God on the banks of the Red Sea, he had to survive his own birth. In Exodus, it is no secret that Pharaoh fears the Israelites. This is not the Pharaoh that came to know and trust Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. No, Exodus begins with the death of the beloved Joseph. The unnamed Pharaoh that rises in his place is no friend to the Israelites. We are told that he did not know Joseph and thus does not love Joseph's people. Instead of allies, this Pharaoh views the Israelites as a threat. At worst, and a source of cheap labor at best. In short, his entire relationship to the Israelites is based upon what goods and services they can provide for him. So he puts them to work on imperial building projects, creating great storehouses for food and supplies. The archeological record coupled with ledgers from the 19th dynasty of Egypt tell us that these cities were indeed built by forced labor and that the laborers were often slapped with impossible quotas. One ledger indicates that each man was expected to produce 3,000 bricks in a single day. Unsurprisingly, these quotas were rarely met, and the consequences were brutal. Indeed, it is not difficult to imagine the kinds of abuse that such laborers were subjected to at the hands of their taskmasters. We need not look too far afield to find modern examples of unjust labor practices. From the unsafe working and living conditions of migrant workers to the unwillingness of companies to pay their employees a living wage, unsettling examples of oppressive labor practices are all around us. Despite Pharaoh's best efforts, however, the Israelites continued to flourish, echoing God's command to all of good creation, be fruitful, and multiply. As if the violence of enslavement and forced labor was not enough, Pharaoh doubles down on his attempt to control the Israelites. He commands the midwives Shifra and Pua to kill all the baby boys born to the Hebrew women. But somewhere in the breath between verses 16 and 17, they decide that they cannot bear such a thing. As much as I wish we could, we don't get to overhear their thinking or any of the worried conversations that must have led to their decision to refuse Pharaoh's direct command. We don't get to hear their anger, feel their pain, see their terror, or taste their tears. 
All the writer tells us is that they feared God, and so they did what they had to, to protect the babies, to love their neighbors, to bring forth life in a land filled with death. It's a funny thing, really, that the text tells us the names of these two women and neglects to name Pharaoh, especially when across the canon, it is far more likely for female characters to go unnamed than male characters. Of the nearly 1,700 distinct names in the Bible, only 137 are women. And it is these two women in their mundane task of delivering babies that thwart a genocide and make way for God's salvific activity to slip into the world. In their creative disobedience, the midwives offer the first glimpse of rebellion. Like on so many other occasions, God does not seek out the most powerful or those with the highest station to do the work of justice making. No, here the work of the kingdom is done by the least of these, by enslaved midwives who dare to refuse death. Like the medics who run into sprays of rubber bullets and exploding canisters of tear gas to tend to injured protesters, Shifra and Pua put themselves between Pharaoh and the condemned families. They didn't decide their hands were tied for their lack of power. They took what they had, their knowledge of birthing, their relationships with their friends and neighbors, and acted on behalf of those the state sought to eradicate. We have much to learn from these women. As one commentator puts it, the midwives stretch us toward a proper response to oppression. They remind us that it is the responsibility of all of us, regardless of our position, to do justice, to love mercy, and to bring about the transformation of the systems of this world. In this time of already and not yet, it is only with our combined efforts that the work of God may be brought to its fullest expression. Yes, the midwives offer us the first glimmer of hope, but they do not act alone. Hidden between the lines of this story is the hard truth that even the efforts of Shifra and Pua could not save all of the Hebrew sons. Despite their efforts, death still reigned in Egypt. Moses' mother, Jochebed, would not have had to hide her child if the threat to his life had passed. Indeed, the narrative tells us that after his command to the midwives failed to produce the intended results, Pharaoh spread his edict to all of his people, distributing widely a license to fear, to hate, and to murder. In a moment, the very same ideology that allowed the Israelites to be dehumanized and enslaved crystallized into a weapon, a weapon that maimed families and slaughtered children. Without Jochebed's effort to hide her child, without Miriam's watchful eye along the banks of the Nile, Moses would have been one more casualty of Pharaoh's fear-driven tyranny. The text zooms in on Moses here, and we don't get to hear the stories of other mothers and other sisters, of other families who risked their lives to protect their children. The writer doesn't tell us about the tactics that they used to conceal the babies, but if you've ever cared for a newborn, you know that it is the work of a village, not a mother alone. It was the work of mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, grandparents, neighbors, cousins and friends to protect the children of the community. Making a way for life in the face of overwhelming death is not the result 
of one big act. It's a series of small moments that add up to something bigger than the sum of its parts. Yes, like the midwives, Moses' community did what they could to resist the threat. The refusal of Shifra and Pua to carry out Pharaoh's orders made possible Moses' birth, but it was Jochebed and Miriam that made possible his continued survival. But even with the support of their community, they could not allow him to thrive, to truly live. It took one more act of resistance to open up the possibility of life for future generations of Israelite children. It took a daughter defying her father, a princess shrugging off the obedience expected of a woman of her station in a male-dominated system to make a way for Moses to live. Without Pharaoh's daughter's decision to love a baby she knew to be marked for death, the story as we know it would have ended here. No signs and wonders, no flight from Egypt, no wanderings in the desert, no manna, no covenant, no dwelling with God, no promised land. Pharaoh's daughter's refusal to adhere to his edict of state-sanctioned violence betrays the bankruptcy of the policy and makes plain the evil of exerting the power of death instead of the power of life. Again and again in this story and across the canon, God refuses to engage power as it is usually exercised in the world. Other than through these women, God never intervenes directly to topple the unjust, death-dealing system that is oppressing this community. Instead, God's, God moves from below, from among and between those who find hope in the midst of what appears to be hopeless. So yes, we have much to learn from these women, from Shifra, Hua, Jacobit, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. We have much to glean from their small resistances, from the ways that they use what they have to fight against what seems to be insurmountable evil. They remind us what it looks like to love your neighbor, especially when your neighbor doesn't look like you, or work like you, or eat like you, or live like you. They remind us that even when we are surrounded by death, threat, and hate, it is the right of all of God's good creation to do more than just barely survive. The care and nurture of life, the very power of life, is the responsibility of all of us. No matter what your station, no matter how small or large or public or quiet the act, the women of Exodus remind us that we must take it because it matters, because God can use it to make a way where there isn't one. Amen.